Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We're going to begin in prayer. If you'll please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Father, grant us your Holy Spirit this evening to settle our hearts and focus our minds. Drive away from us all distractions so that we may give ourselves more fully to learning of the incarnate word and the salvation that he has wrought for us. And hear us as we invoke the intercession of the Mother of God as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Juan Diego, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Our speaker tonight is the pastor of St. John the Beloved Catholic Church in McLean, Virginia. He received a Master of Arts degree from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, in Rome in 1996 and was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Arlington the same year. Father Scalia has published articles in various periodicals, including This Rock, First Things, and Human Life Review, and is currently serving as chaplain of the Arlington Diocese Courage Chapter. More important, I could have done that by heart because he's spoken for us so many times, but more important than that, for me anyways, Father Scalia has been a dear friend and a great supporter of the Institute of Catholic Culture, one of its founding members of the Board of Advisors. Please join me in welcoming Father Paul Scalia. Thank you, Sabatino. want to begin with just two passages from Scripture, one from Romans 5, the other from 1 Corinthians 15. Just as through one transgression condemnation came upon all, so through one righteous act acquittal and life came to all. For just as through the disobedience of one person the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. For just as in Adam all die, so too in Christ shall all be brought to life. St. Paul in these two passages very clearly making an analogy or comparison between Adam and our Lord, death entering the world through Adam and life through our Lord. So this talk is entitled, The Death of Adam and the Birth of Christ. And it basically provokes the question of why the incarnation? Why did God become man? Why did he take on our human nature? A fitting question for this time of year. And we can confidently answer because this is a part of the creed that was not changed in the new translation, so we can be confident in answering it, um, for us men and for our salvation. 
That is the purpose, really, of the incarnation. But it's only a partial answer, because God could have saved us in any number of ways. The incarnation was not necessary for salvation. He could have saved us just by willing it, or by you know, the preaching of a prophet, or something like that. God, who is almighty, could have saved us in any number of ways, but for us men and for our salvation, he took on our human nature. Why, then, did he do it in this way? Why did he become man? Why did he choose to save us through the incarnation? Another way of putting it, apropos of the title, is to ask, what does the death of Adam have to do with the birth of Christ? How are these two things related? Now, in the passages that I just read, St. Paul indicates, as I said, a certain parallel or similarity uh, between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation. And so this evening, we want to reflect on what is that connection? And let me just point out in broad strokes that every medicine has to be apt or fit for the illness that it is to address. It is designed to cure something specific. Not just any old medicine will do for any old illness. Each medicine is designed, is apt, is fit for a particular illness. And so as the effects of sin go, so also in a remedial manner go the solutions. In other words, sin is the sickness and we should find a solution that is apt, that is fitted to the sickness that we suffer. Or as St. Irenaeus says, and I'll get to that later, a knot is untied simply by reversing the manner of the tying of the knot. And so the death of Adam, that is the sin of Adam, establishes not just the need for a savior, and so is connected to the incarnation in that way, but it also establishes, in a certain sense, the pattern of the Savior, what kind of Savior we will receive. Because the Savior is coming to save us in a particular manner to address a particular illness that we have. The solution, in other words, should address the effects, should address the problem and be suited to it. Just in general, this is a good principle to keep in mind as regards the faith, two intellectual giants really preceded by this same principle, namely now blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman, which is really just a mouthful, who in explaining especially the authority of the church, he reasoned by saying, well, what is it that we need in order to overcome the ignorance and the weakness that we suffer on account of sin? And from that he said, well, it's entirely reasonable that the church possess the authority that she has. And then G.K. Chesterton, of course, his whole premise in Orthodoxy, that, that great book of his uh, about his own conversion, is proceeding by the same lights. He is searching for the truth and thinking, well, what is it that man needs? What is it that will answer all of the desires and the needs of the human heart? And that leads him, of course, to Christianity and Catholicism eventually. So let's consider this whole concept of a cure that is fit for a disease first. It's something that's standard in medicine. 
you proportion the medicine to the disease. And this evening, simply going to apply the same thing to the realm of theology. We speak of certain things as fitting. In the theological world, this is the basis very often for arguing a certain theological point. It's, it's the argument from fittingness. Now, when I say fitting, I don't mean that it just kind of works out nicely and, and no one is inconvenienced. The Latin word actually is conveniente, and there, there's a story of a professor at, um, at the Angelicum in Rome who years ago was teaching on this topic, on why the word became flesh and how fitting it was. But he was a Spanish priest living in Italy, teaching in English, <laughs> with the Latin firmly in his mind. And so what came out was, it was convenient for the word to become flesh. Okay. Something very appealing to modern man, right? Well, you know, it, it didn't take much time. It was just like, you know, you, know, you imagine the dialogue between the father and the son. You know, well, they need to be saved. Are you, are you busy? I mean, are you, do you have time? Okay. So, so when we talk about fitting, let's leave all of that aside. That's not what we mean. We mean something more than good timing. St. Thomas speaks of the necessity of convenience. Uh, which is a little bit paradoxical, the necessity of convenience. And so it's something stronger than just kind of it, it all fit together nicely. And what all this means is that to understand more profoundly the feast that we are approaching, we should first look back at Adam's death, at the first sin and its effects. Look first at the sin that caused both Adam's death and Christ's birth. I'd like to address it looking at three effects of original sin. Now, mind you, this topic is addressing Christology and soteriology. Okay? The two natures of Christ, second person of the Trinity, uh, incarnate, and then how exactly it is that he saved us. These are semester-long courses in the seminary. Okay? So how long do you have? Speaking of convenient, right? Uh, so I'd like to just touch on three aspects of sin and how they set the pattern for the Redeemer that we are to welcome in just a couple weeks. So first, the first and the most obvious effect of original sin is guilt. Is guilt. Now this is a legalistic an external way of thinking about this. By the sin of Adam, and, and ladies, it's never called just the sin of Eve, the way it's called the sin of Adam, okay? So you can gloat about that if you'd like, okay? The sin of Adam incurs an eternal or an infinite guilt because of the one who is offended. Now, we might think, well, God, how could it be infinite or eternal? Just a fruit on a tree, right? Well, that just happens to be sort of the occasion for it. But what happened, of course, was the rebellion of the creature against the creator. And not just any creature, mind you. Let's keep in mind the summit of God's creation in this world. The rebellion of that creature against the creator. And so there is an infinite quality 
to this offense. This shouldn't be too hard for us to understand because we, we do a similar thing in our own legal system, right? I mean, it's those who are innocent and are harmed, that kind of incurs more guilt, right, than somebody who is harmed in the midst of a you know, good old healthy fight and they're not really innocent bystanders. And we just know this to be common sense. When the innocent are hurt, that's a much graver thing than to hurt someone, you know, a grown adult. Remember the um, baby on board signs, you know, in cars? And it was to alert you, there's a child in this car, you have to be extra careful. Okay, well, why? You know, an elderly man has just as much of a life as an infant, but we don't put, you know, elderly on board. Okay. Um, because we sense that doing harm to the innocent is somehow more grave. And, of course, no one is more innocent, more pure, than God himself. And so we sense that the guilt that is incurred is related to the person who is offended. And in the, in the case of Adam's sin, the person who is offended is infinite. Second, Adam's sin introduces a disorder into everything, really, all of creation. It introduces a disorder into himself, into his own soul, a disorder in the relationship of the soul and the body, a disorder in his relationship with Eve. What's the first thing that Adam does, of course? He blames Eve, and by implication, he blames God. It was the woman who you, you put here with me. You know, I was happy. I had plenty of yard work to do. You, you, you put her here. And so there's a, a disruption, a disorder in his relationship with God, his relationship within himself, his relationship with Eve, his relationship with all of creation. Now there is disorder and disharmony in all of creation. Because when the head of this created world rebelled against the creator, then everything else rebelled against him. When Adam rebelled against God, his lower faculties rebelled against him. Now the body and the soul don't have a happy relationship as they were supposed to. Adam and Eve initially were naked without shame. But now that is not what man and woman experience because of the disorder that's introduced, the division of the body and the soul. Our intellect, our will, our passions, these things don't get along very happily as they God intended them to, at war with one another. This is because of Adam's rebellion and so on. So first is the guilt, second, the disorder introduced to all creation, especially into humanity and all of our relationships. And third, I want to sort of tease this out, it could be related to the second, but I, I want to kind of tease it out for special emphasis. Our ignorance, our, let's call it a lack of vision, our sight, in a sense, is distorted is blurred. The intellect is darkened, but I think something more is happening too. The turning away from God means that we don't see things clearly. We don't see the creation as we ought to. We don't see one another as we ought to. We don't see ourselves as we ought to. So, guilt, disorder, and a damaged vision, if you will. 
These are the three effects I want to center on. There are many more, as we all know, right? But these are the three I want to center on and, and reflect on how it is that the birth of Christ answers each one of these, is fitted to each one. Because given all of this that I've said about these effects, the remedy, the medicine, or the cure, it ought to address these. The punishment fit the crime, but now we're reflecting on how the Savior sort of fits the punishment. In other words, we need a Redeemer who can remove guilt, restore order, and bestow a true vision. So the guilt that is to be expiated. This principle is made famous most especially by St. Anselm in his explanation, and he tries to do it just in a strictly rationalist way, his explanation of why God became man. It is as follows. Man owed an infinite debt, but man, as finite, could not pay that debt. No one but man could pay it, but man could not because he lacked the means to. And so to solve this, God becomes man so that in Christ, man is paying that debt that only God is capable of paying. Only God is capable of giving an infinite return, of paying this infinite debt or this infinite guilt, atoning for it. So in Jesus Christ, man is paying the debt that he owes. He's atoning for the guilt that he suffers. But he is able to do it because in Jesus Christ, of course, God is paying that as well. He is atoning. And this is why, one of the reasons why he becomes man. Everything that our Lord does has infinite meaning, has eternal significance. And so his offering of his life in atonement for our sins takes on that eternal, infinite significance so that we can pay that debt. Now let's apply this to just one area of your life, your favorite area, confession. Okay. Because what happens when you're assigned a penance? Let's say you go into the confessional and you confess taking the Lord's name in vain, knowingly and willingly. Okay, it is grave matter. You do it knowingly and willingly. That's a mortal sin. You are cut off from God. You have incurred an infinite debt. How do you repay that? You cannot. In confession, the priest absolves you of your sin, but then you have to still go and do what? Do your penance. Which kind of leads us to a problem here, doesn't it? When you do your penance, are you capable of making up for what you did? No. That's why every penance that we do is in union with the Word made flesh. Every penance that we do is in union with Christ crucified. Because He is the only one who can and who has atoned, not just for Adam's sin, but for yours and for mine. For every sin that has ever been committed or will be committed. So when we repent, when we do penance, it is always in union with Him. Because apart from the incarnate Word, 
we cannot make that return to God. We cannot, we cannot atone for anything. But in union with him, then our penance takes on a salutary character for us, not because of our own merits, but because we are in union with him, who alone can atone for all, because he is the God-man. Second, the disorder that is to be healed. As I said, when the head of all creation in this world rebels, everything is thrown into disorder. All natural disasters are a result of sin. Let me explain, because I don't want to seem like one of those guys that very neatly says, uh, Katrina is because, you know, New Orleans is a sinful city. That would be very easy to dismiss it that way, right? Okay, so oh, they sin, they get to, that's it. No, uh, because if that were the case, theologically, there'd be a whole lot of other cities that would have gone first, right? Um, no, all natural disasters are a result of sin because disorder entered into the world, not just morally, not just spiritually, but physically as well, and not just in our bodies, but into creation. All creation groans as it waits redemption. So the entire world has suffered this. Adam was the head of humanity. By his sin, he introduced disorder and disharmony into all of humanity, to all of his descendants. And all of us suffer that, and we know it. Therefore, what is needed is, well, a new head. It's not enough, as St. Athanasius says, that guilt be taken away. Remember, I said that's just kind of a legalistic and external consideration. You owe this, it must be paid. Now, there is another aspect of sin, and that is not just the external imputation of guilt to us because of what we've done, but also the disorder that is within us because of sin. And God becomes man in order to heal that disorder and that disharmony. An ancient saying of the church fathers is as follows. That which was not assumed is not healed. That which is not assumed is not healed. In other words, the Son of God assumed to himself our human nature and every aspect of our human nature save our sin in order that he could heal every aspect of our human nature. So, Jesus Christ has a human body and a human soul, a human intellect, a human will, and human passions. By uniting this to himself, he establishes the principle of healing and reordering for all of us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, St. Paul speaks of this as recapitulation. I mean, that's the Latinate word that comes to us. It means the reheading, that in Jesus Christ we have a new Adam. He is the new head of a new humanity. If I can put it in crass, vulgar, modern terms, he's rebooted humanity. Okay. 
or if you will, it's humanity 2.0, okay? <laughs> there was a fatal error in the first, okay? But that is actually not far off because of the errors that came about in the first creation, in the first Adam, in order to heal those and to restore unity to all of humanity, what needed to happen was not just the forgiveness, but an interior healing. And so God unites to himself our human nature and reheads, recapitulates the entire human race. And so when you are baptized, you're taken sort of out of Adam and put into Christ. You're taken out of the old humanity and inserted into the new humanity. Now you have a new head, Jesus Christ. And this is something that no doctor, of course, could ever do. You know, I talked about how medicine has to address the illness. <laughs> well, with doctors, that's always just kind of an external thing. I'm prescribing medicine for you. But what if a doctor could actually get inside of the person and heal them from within? That is the divine physician. He does not heal us from a distance, he unites our human nature to himself so that possessing that human nature and healing us from within, that is how he restores us to himself. This is something that uh, St. Athanasius, for example, he puts it this way, through this union of the immortal Son of God with our human nature, all men were clothed with incorruption in the promise of the resurrection. For the solidarity of mankind is such that by virtue of the words indwelling in a single human body, the corruption which goes with death has lost its power over all. In other words, he has accomplished this for us. Now we need to be integrated into him so that we can enjoy the benefits of that healing that he has established, that union with all of humanity. And what St. Athanasius said, as I just read, anticipates what Vatican II says and what John Paul II would teach. For example, Redemptor Hominis, human nature, by the very fact that it was assumed not absorbed in Christ, has been raised in us also to a dignity beyond compare. For by his incarnation, he, the Son of God, in a certain way, united himself with each man. In this dimension, man finds again the greatness, dignity, and value that belong to his humanity. In the mystery of the redemption, man becomes newly expressed and in a way, is newly created. He is newly created. Just to pause here for a new translation advertisement. Okay. I've joked with my parishioners that I'm going to be the first martyr of the new translation because they're going to be so sick and tired of hearing about it from me that they're going to beat me to death with the pew cards. Okay. Um, but but one, one, of the, one line from the old translation that always irked me was, it's drawing from St. Paul's writings, and it says, In Christ you made so-and-so a new creature. Well, it's not what St. Paul says. A new creation, not a new creature. Okay, I've always kind of wondered, a new creature, what kind of creature? A griffin? A unicorn? What? Um, uh, no, a new creation. 
That is what has been accomplished for us. And the more we are united with Christ, the more we are in that new creation. This is what St. Irenaeus means by he is the great teacher of the recapitulation of all things in Christ. Everything finds a new beginning in him. Even the created world. When we, sons of God, united with Christ, when we apply ourselves to the created world, it finds a new dignity through us and through him to the Father. And all of those physical things that are incorporated into the liturgy, those are aspects of the created world, of the physical world, the material world, that through, with, and in Christ, in this new creation, they glorify the Father. So everything has been recapitulated in Him. It is our task now to go about and collect it and bring it to Him, and bring it into Him. He has established the principle. Now we need to extend that to all things. And the more we are united with him, the more the disorder within us is healed. The more our will is strengthened, the more our intellect is enlightened, the more our passions are ordered. And the more our body and soul are sort of reconciled with one another, if you will. This is one way of making sense of the um, Catholic calisthenics okay, at Mass. You know, the sitting, kneeling... Um, you know, standing, genuflecting, sign of the cross, and all of these things. And visitors who are not Catholic are just kind of, they're sometimes frightened. They don't really know what's going on. Cardinal Ratzinger calls all of that training for the resurrection. Training for the resurrection. Now, literally, we don't need to train for it. So, you know, if you don't get it right by then, you know, you'll be all right. But, um, but it's a wonderful way of thinking about this, that, that even the body and all of creation, is incorporated into this reheading of all things. And so the Redeemer who has been sent is fitted, is apt for these first two things. The guilt that we incurred, he alone can pay it and has. And second, the disorder that we suffer within. By uniting us to himself, by incorporating all of us into himself, he has established for us that interior principle of healing and renewal, making us a new creation. Now, I'd like to turn to the third. And I need to tip my hat, Beretta, to Sabatino for the quote that he placed on the flyer, which is apt and fitting. But it is this point about our vision, our vision. Saint Athanasius says this, man bears also the likeness of him who is, and if he preserves that likeness through constant contemplation, then his nature is deprived of its power to decay, he means, and remains incorrupt. This is a fascinating point that Athanasius is making. Through constant contemplation, by always focusing on God, by having our eyes upon him at all times, we are preserved from corruption. It is when Adam took his eyes off God. And this is in, in the very nature of envy, isn't it? Which is at the heart of rebellion against God. Because envy means 
to look askance, to look elsewhere, no longer to look at God, but to look at the other person, to look elsewhere and say, well, why didn't I get that? And therefore to rebel. Adam removed his constant contemplation from God, did not look at him and looked at something else, looked at something corruptible. Now, if looking at incorruption preserves the likeness of God within us, then what does looking at corruption, or what is corruptible, what does that mean? It means death. This is a fascinating uh, point that he's making, especially as regards our worship. We become like what we worship, because worship's highest point, of course, is adoration. Adoration. And so the more we adore God, the more we become like him. The more we take our eyes off of him, the more corruptible we become. Saint Irenaeus put it this way, Gloria enum Dei homo vivens, one of the greatest lines ever written. The glory of God is man fully alive, or the living man, and then, the often forgotten second part, Vita autem hominis visio Dei, the life of man is the vision of God. What gives us life? It is to see God. That's heaven. And this side of heaven, we grow in our life the more that we are intent on Him, the more we are contemplating Him, even in the midst of everything else we do. The glory of God is the living man. The life of man is the vision of God. And so in Canto 3 of the Inferno, as they're just entering into hell. Charon comes to escort them across the river. Dante watches him as Charon loads up all of these miserable, wretched souls into his boat to escort them to hell. And he says to them, Woe to you, you crooked souls. Give up all hope to look upon the sky. Give up all hope to look upon the sky. Because what have these crooked souls done? They've inverted what they are supposed to be. We are supposed to walk upright, and we have the capacity to look up, to look to God. And by sin, we look down. We make ourselves crooked by looking and adoring what is corruptible. And when we adore what is corruptible, we ourselves become corrupt. So what has our Lord done to cure this? He enters into the world to cure our vision, to heal our vision. Another advertisement for the new translation. The preface for Christmas restored to uh, former glory. First of all, let me just point out in the creed, we have visible and invisible, and then this preface for Christmas. For in the mystery of the word made flesh, a new light of your glory has shone upon the eyes of our mind. So that as we recognize in him, God made visible, we may be caught up through him in love of things invisible. For in the mystery of the word made flesh, a new light of your glory has shone upon the eyes of our mind. So that as we recognize in him, God made visible, we may be caught up through him in love of things invisible. And this, again, Athanasius, of course, taught, anticipated, well, really established as one of the first teachers. 
Christ became himself an object for the senses, so that those who were seeking God in sensible things might apprehend the Father through the works which he, the Word of God, did in the body. This is beautiful. The way God proportions himself to our needs. We had turned away from God. We had ceased to look upon him. We are caught up with the things of this world and even adoring and idolizing the things of this world. And in order to cure that, to cure that distorted vision that brings death, what does he do? He takes on a human body. He takes on our human likeness, our human nature, so that we can look upon him. We who are so intent on looking upon physical, material things, we look upon him and what do we find but God himself. He proportions himself to our needs. The Savior is apt, is fitted to the sickness that we suffer. He heals our vision. This is no small matter. Let me linger a little more on the importance of this vision. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, what's one of the greatest plagues in our culture right now? Pornography. What's that all about? Distorted vision. We are created to look upon God, to look upon things and rejoice in God's glory. What is pornography but simply the distortion of that, the twisting of it? Yesterday, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception should put all of us in mind of St. Bernadette and just something about when Our Lady appeared to Bernadette. Bernadette's face was transfigured when Mary appeared. Nobody else there could see Mary. Only Bernadette could. But they knew something was going on because there was a brightness about Bernadette's face. There was something shining forth from her face as she looked upon the Blessed Virgin Mary, this heavenly messenger. And because of that, people were converted. It gets again to this basic truth. We become what we worship. And what we look upon, that will really determine the kind of people that we are. God wants us to look upon himself and so become like him. This is why John Paul II and, and Benedict following the lead, if you notice, there is a constant exhortation to seek the face of Christ, to look upon his face. And this is something that is constant throughout Scripture in the Psalms. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Or from the psalm that's used the first Sunday of Advent, let your face shine upon us, O Lord, and we shall be saved. Let your face shine upon us, O Lord, and we sh let us see your face. That will bring us salvation. That vision and Christ is the fulfillment of that. When we look upon him, we are looking upon our own salvation. And of course, uh, St. Paul. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. St. Paul taps into this same principle of worship and of our interior transformation. The more we look at our Lord, the more we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And what does St. John say in his first epistle? 
We shall become like him, for we shall see him as he is. What do we all strive for? The beatific vision. He came to restore that because it was by that constant contemplation of God that he desired us to have his likeness preserved in us and even increased. It was by turning away from that contemplation that corruption and disintegration was introduced into us. So by becoming flesh, by becoming one of us, he enabled us to look upon him again. He enabled us to see our salvation. And so these three things, as we hasten towards Christmas, are guilt. This is why he's born, to give his life. I once heard of the most uh, curious Christmas card. It was, uh, you know, sent to people in an envelope, of course, and they open the envelope, take out the card, and there's a crucifixion scene. Not what you're anticipating in December, right? And it opened it up and it said, for this, he was born. Now, I'm not, I'm not encouraging that. I don't think it's great season's greetings, but, um, <laughs> but theologically, it's, it's, it's awfully accurate. He came into the world to give his life because only he could restore us to the Father. Only he could atone, not just for Adam's sin and all the damage that it's brought to us, but for our sins as well and the continued damage that we inflict upon one another and upon ourselves. Second, our Lord is born in Bethlehem so that he can be born within us, so that by dwelling within us, he can become our head. He can restore us, renew us, make us that new creation, heal us from within. Not just take away our guilt, but heal us from within making us members of that new creation, uniting us to himself. And at Christmas, as we say, Venite adoremus, come let us adore him. We're reminded that he has come to heal our vision so that we can look upon salvation again. And by adoring him there, we can become more like him. Venite adoremus. There's another time in the liturgy of the church that we sing those words. On Good Friday, for the veneration of the cross, as the priest holds it up and says, if he chants the Latin, you know, behold the wood of the cross on which the Savior died, the Latin response is, venite adoremus. We adore him as an infant in Bethlehem, and there, by that adoration, we find healing. And we adore him on the cross because there the Word made flesh has realized his full purpose by atoning for our sins, by offering the sacrifice that brings us healing, and by giving us one to adore. If we want to arrive there, well, we've got to begin in Bethlehem. He's made it so easy for us, so easy for us to find forgiveness, to find healing, and to find that restoration of the vision that God wants us to have. We simply need to heed the words, Venite adoremus, go to Bethlehem and adore the Word made flesh. Thank you. Last month I 
uh, was invited down to Raleigh, North Carolina to give a talk uh, at a pro-life fundraiser. And uh, right before I got up to speak, a guy came up to me and he said, Father, are you going to make a plug for the Institute of Catholic Culture? <laughs> and I said, well, I mean, I'm not opposed to that, but it's not really the setting, and I don't want to sort of ambush my host, Bishop Burbage, so it's a fundraiser for something else. And how do you know about the Institute of Catholic Culture down here in Raleigh? And uh, he might be tuning in online tonight, I don't know. But that's the reach uh, that it has established, and so your donations here are to a very good cause. Thank you, Father. You did make the plug, though, right? <laughs> We're going to take a short break. There's some wine and cheese and soap. Father, the structure you created has a lot of symmetry, the three-part structure. Where do you plug the Eucharist into your framework? Okay. Great question. Where do you put the Eucharist in the framework? Well, all three. <laughs> oh, you want more? Okay. Um, <laughs> um, the Eucharist is sacrifice, presence, and communion. Or let's say sacrifice, communion, and presence. Let's do it in that order. So the sacrifice of the Mass, that makes present the one sacrifice of all creation, of all, of all history. All other sacrifices uh, pointed to that one. You know, the New Translation has a wonderful... Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, the, uh, the, the, in, in, the, in the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer, we talk about Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek. Their sacrifices are mentioned there because they were in anticipation and pointed towards a prefigured, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It is his sacrifice alone that reconciles us with the Father. That is the one atoning sacrifice. Nothing else can atone for our sins but that. And at the Mass, that sacrifice is made present to us. And we usually yawn. You know? <laughs> okay, so first, the, the Eucharist is sacrifice. Second, the Eucharist as communion. When we receive our Lord, we receive a principle of healing. It is really medicine for our souls, isn't it? And so brings us, helps to integrate us and to restore to harmony the disharmony that is within us. But also the Eucharist, by way of communion, we receive our Lord and we are received into him as well. I mean, when you receive communion, who's receiving whom? You are receiving our Lord, but you are also being received into his mystical body. You are being incorporated more into the new creation that he has established, into his mystical body, the church, where we find, please God, harmony restored to our relationships with one another as well. And then finally, the Eucharist as presence, the real presence of our Lord. Now let's, let's think of this, and we, we have to reflect on it, keep in mind. When we say that our Lord is really present to the Eucharist, he, he's not present the way this thing here is present. His is a living presence, a living presence. You go to a place of adoration, and you look upon the host, you are looking upon the living God. And... It's not a begrudging presence. <sighs> I told you I'd be here, so here I am. <laughs> Come on. You know, what do you, what do you want? <laughs> okay. uh, no, he delights to be with us. God takes delight in his people. <laughs> we don't usually, but he does, right? And he is there to be adored. So that by adoring him, we can experience what St. Paul talks about. Being transformed from you know, one degree of glory to another. And so all three are dressed by the Eucharist, quite nicely, actually. 
And, and this is why, you know, adoration is so important. Less time in front of screens, more time in front of a monstrance. Uh, Father, what is the role of free will with the sin of Adam and the birth of Christ? What is the role of free will with the sin of Adam and the birth of Christ? Well, the, the reason it's a sin is because it's freely willed, first of all. Second of all, with the birth of Christ, God in his providence certainly directs all of history to the point at which he enters into history. He does not, by becoming man, by uniting himself to us, first of all in the incarnation and then throughout time and throughout the world by way of the sacraments of the church, he does not compromise our free will at all. The interior healing that I discussed, one of the greatest effects of that is really healing our free will. The mistake we make is this. It's one of the great modern mistakes. We think that free will means the ability to choose good or evil. That is not why God gave us free will. He gave us free will so that we could choose good. Now, a logical consequence is we also have the ability to choose evil. But that's not the purpose of free will. What happens because of sin is that our wills are compromised. We are shackled, in a sense. Our free will is it's compromised. It's not eliminated entirely, but it is compromised. Our wills are weakened. So even when we do know what is right, we have difficulty choosing it. He has come to restore our free will to its proper dignity so that we can choose him with everything that we are. And our option against evil in this, our, our choice against evil, as we are transformed more and more into Christ, our rejection of evil should become easier. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, says the Lord. I think one way of understanding that is that as we are integrated into him more and more, and the disorder within us is healed more and more, doing his will is no longer a heavy yoke or burden, but it is something that we do spontaneously, in fact. And the rejection of evil should become something that it's easy, just kind of second nature. Of course I wouldn't do that. That's not part of who I am. God has come to restore our free will. There seems to be, I think, a fear, especially in the modern world, that by giving ourselves to him, by submitting to his will, we somehow become less. Our free will came from him. If we really want our free will to be restored, then it is by submitting it to him. Because he alone can heal that freedom that he first granted. The healing that our Lord has come to bring, it involves the restoration of our free will. And no one is really freer than the saints, and we find in them a certain spontaneity and freedom that is you know, admirable and really enviable. Father, would you like to make any comments on Mary as the new Eve? Didn't I do that last year? Didn't I give a yeah, talk on that, that last, last year? year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is yesterday's feast. St. Irenaeus, of course, when he, he's talking about recapitulation of all things, and, and I mentioned the undoing of a knot. The knot that was tied by Adam is untied by our Lord. And just as the first Adam had a suitable partner, namely his wife Eve, 
So also the new Adam has a suitable partner, but in this case, his mother, standing at the foot of the cross. And so Mary is the new Eve. By her obedience, she undoes the knot of Eve's disobedience. By her humility, she undoes the knot of Eve's pride. So Mary, as the new Eve, is the one undoing. In a sense, uh, we don't speak of her as recapitulating, but she is undoing what Eve had done. And then also is the suitable partner to our Lord, especially, as I said, at the foot of the cross. Uh, well, but yesterday's feast in the New Translation is great. It makes clear that the Immaculate Conception signifies the church. It's an extraordinary preface in that Mass. When we think of the Immaculate Conception, we're not just thinking of Mary. Mary always, always points us back to the church. She is at the foot of the cross. She's standing in the place of the church, really. Father, this is an email that we're receiving from somewhere out there. I didn't get the, the state, but from Casey Hayes who wanted you to expand on how Jesus heals the disorder within us, which I know is a very broad question, but maybe you could put it down into just a couple of sentences. How exactly does Jesus heal the disorder within us? Uh, let's just focus on two things. Truth and grace. So first, by doctrine, by teaching us about the Father, ultimately, by teaching us what is true. And so, by way of his mystical body, he continues to teach us about God and about ourselves. Paul VI has this great line that the church is an expert in humanity. The church is an expert in humanity. By giving the, the true doctrine about God and about man, we are enlightened. But that's not enough, because we can know what is right and what is good and what is true and what is beautiful, and still do the opposite. And so this is the, uh, the sacraments and prayer. That is an interior action that helps to bring about a healing. And that's why, you know, a good confession, there is a healing aspect there. The Eucharist, when these things are received devoutly and regularly, and then in prayer, asking God to go deeper and deeper and, and inviting him in for that healing, that is another way in which it's done. Let me also point out liturgically, because especially, I mean, the Western world is so rational that we forget about the power of the liturgy, the power of mystery and of symbols and signs and all of these things to help us. Great book, since you're taking notes here, Liturgy and Personality by Dietrich von Hildebrand. I think it's his best book. It's easy for me to say because I haven't read all his books. But, but it, it talks about how, how the liturgy shapes us and forms us and why it's so important to worship properly. Because when we worship properly, we're not just giving glory to God. In so doing, we are also being restored ourselves. So I started with two, I added a third. A third all right. So doctrine, sacraments, liturgy. Thank you very much, Father. All right, thank you. God bless you. Just a final note. I know I mentioned the CDs and you know, stocking stuffers and so forth. But I have to warn you about one particular speaker that you're definitely not want to give out for Christmas. I climbed in the van yesterday with my son and uh, had to go down to buy some, some Christmas lights. And he says, Daddy, can we listen to an Institute story? I've got all my CDs there, right? All the CDs. I said, sure, son, I'm going to pick out a special one for you. 
So I grabbed one of my talks. I put it in a CD player and I was listening, how did I do and so forth. And we got home about 10 minutes later, not a long drive. I said, what did you think, son? And there was nothing. I said, what did you think, son? I turned on the light and he had fallen asleep. So make sure you grab a copy of Father Scalia's CD or another one that your uh, friends won't fall asleep to. May God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.